welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. You know what? (laughs) I'm done with you upstaging me, lady. (laughs) (laughs) Our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on Tkumlips-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sewetmuk-Ulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. Indeed. Although this week we're mostly just going to talk about white people. Uh, yeah. My homework's not too bad. Oh, good. Okay. Actually, mine is too. Yay, progress. Okay. So, folks, this is a bit of a scattershot mini-sode. I was going to call it a grab bag. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Folks, <laughs> this is a grab bag <laughs> which we have called YA in Focus at the suggestion of our dear listener, Max, who asked us to focus on the contributions of a couple of key YA folks. So we're actually going to use the two that Max suggested. Mm-hmm. Although if this goes well, we may think about revisiting it with a couple of other people down the line. We didn't intend to do exactly what Max had suggested. We were going to go away and like think about it and develop mm-hmm. something. Yeah. But we're both exhausted and creatively bankrupt. So thanks, Max. You really saved our butts this week. Yes, it's called other people doing our homework uh-huh. and then us taking credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about Judy Bloom and Kevin Williamson. And then we also have a little bit of listener mail to follow up our All the Bright Places episode, which kicked off book three. And we've got, I think, a bit of homework. So we're going to update you on what we're reading. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, let's begin with the listener mail. And we'll give a shout out to Andrew, who wrote in to unpack the All the Bright Places episode that we did a couple weeks ago, like Mm -hmm. four weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Andrew had actually previously written in when he first requested the episode along with a couple of other folks, and then he followed up after the episode came out. And I think the big thing that Andrew wanted to talk about was the fact that he really enjoyed the chemistry between Elle Fanning and Justice Smith. And he feels like Justice Smith in particular is an actor who typically gets pigeonholed into a certain type of role. And he liked, Andrew did, liked that Justice Smith got to be fun and goofy in this movie, at least in the first half. Mm, I don't disagree with that. He's often sort of the significant but still off-center best friend character, right? Yeah, or a little bit stoic. Yeah. It's almost like because he is a person of color, he's asked to take on more responsibility and be the morally upstanding character Mm -hmm. so it was a nice change of pace to see him just cut loose Mm -hmm. i buy that so then this is where andrew's problem with the film adaptation in particular came in is that this is all good he gets to have fun and then all of a sudden it's not just the ableism but it becomes a person of color who ends up having to die so that he can guide some white lady's journey True. Yeah. And we didn't even talk about that. We talked about the ableism extensively because to me that was front and center. But yeah, we didn't even talk about that aspect of it. And it's worth raising. Thanks, Andrew. 
Yeah. So it's one of those things where I think you have to be really mindful as a creative if you're going to, as we said, it's no longer diversity flip, it is now inclusion flip. But So much better. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. If you're going to make efforts to do that and say, we're bringing this text into the contemporary world by acknowledging that the world is not white and there are lots of different people that we should be putting into these lead roles, you then have to be careful about what kind of role you're now giving them. So I don't think that we can say, well, all the bright places does this really badly. It's just more that this is a trend that we Mm -hmm. see. So the film suffers as a result of falling in with a bunch of other texts who have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I strongly agree with everything you just said. I um, I just really wanted that film to be better for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. But here we are. Yeah. And if folks haven't had a chance, go back and listen to that episode where we talk about it extensively. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So thank you, Andrew, for writing in and elaborating on your comments. Always appreciate the listener mail always hkhspod at gmail.com if you don't want to stick around to the very end of the episode Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) i'm bad at this joe (laughs) to be honest i think you're doing great oh you're the best (laughs) so tell me what you've been reading oh i have some homework that i wanted to share and i'm realizing as i'm kind of looking that it's all much more strictly sort of early na but i'm gonna talk about it anyway because both texts that I've finished speak directly to things we've talked about on the show. And the book I just started, I think, is going to be of particular interest to our listeners. I read Lucky Penny by Ananth Hirsch and Yuko Ota. It's a comic. I'm going to read you the summary because I think you're going to like it. Okay. If Penny Brighton didn't have bad luck, she'd have no luck at all. She lost her job and her apartment in the same day. But it's okay. Her friend has a cozy storage unit she can crash in. Oh, no. (laughs) there's bound to be career opportunities at the neighborhood laundromat just look how fast the 12 year old who runs the place made it to management plus there's this sweet guy at the community center maybe penny can have a conversation with him without being a total dork surely penny is capable of becoming an actual responsible adult and if she can do that her luck's bound to change right oh brenna You're reading this like it's funny, and I'm horrified. No, it is. It's genuinely very funny. So the reason I actually picked it up is stylistically, it looks a lot like Scott Pilgrim. And the experience of reading it is very much like, what if in the Scott Pilgrim universe, women could be whole human beings? I don't understand. (laughs) Go back and listen to our Scott Pilgrim episode where we take that book and to a lesser extent film, down a couple pegs. Yeah, we really do. Yeah, so that's why I really enjoyed about Lucky Penny. It's the sort of kind of slacker, loser character who makes bad choice after bad choice. But it's a woman, first of all. And Mm -hmm. she's just much more sort of rounded and complex and interesting than Scott is. And she's less the villain in her own narrative. Nice. It's a series of ridiculous circumstances, including the fact that the 12-year-old who runs the laundromat is also involved in organized crime. Oh, okay. But it's like extreme and fun and the same way that like the fight scenes were really satisfying in Scott Pilgrim. Same kind of idea with Lucky Penny. So that's Lucky Penny by Ananth Hirsch and Yuko Oda. And I think our listeners will really dig it. Very fun. Yeah. Am I going to keep going or are you going to talk? I can talk, yes. (laughs) So I have been slowly reading to the point where I will probably have to return the dumb book to the library before I finish (laughs) it. And the book is not dumb. I am dumb because I am not giving myself time to read it. All this to say, 
I am reading Cemetery Boys by Aiden <gasps> Thomas. Oh, yeah! So, from what I've seen on YA Twitter, this is possibly the hottest title. Mm-hmm. So this came out back in September, and it has been called Groundbreaking, and it's supernatural and spooky, so it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it during October. Mm-hmm. So in case folks don't remember, this is the story of Yadril. He is a trans man who is struggling with his family to get his gender accepted. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that that is important is because he is trying to also prove himself to be a real brujo. There's different roles for men and women in his community, and he's not being taken seriously as a man by his family, which also means that he's not able to practice his supernatural responsibilities as a brujo. So basically, he decides he's going to perform this ritual himself to prove his family wrong, and he accidentally calls forward a ghost (gasps) of a bad boy at school named Julian Diaz, and Julian... (laughs) because he's a bad boy, doesn't take kindly to being told what to do. And of course, they end up having to go on adventures and maybe go on and love a little bit. Yeah, it is a lot of fun because it's very spooky. And it's also rooted in the Latinx community. So it's set in Los Angeles. And even in the, the first couple of pages, we're using Spanish. Oh, nice. So as like a deeply, deeply white person, it's an immensely satisfying read. And then the trans narrative is literally driving everything mm-hmm. in this story. So spooky, it's queer, it's great for white people who like need to round out their education about other people's cultures. So I high recommend all of the reviews that I've read have confirmed this is easily one of the best titles of the year. I'm excited. I have a copy of it somewhere, and I also really want to read it. Am I right in hearing you that it's a trans mask story? Yes. Okay, see, this is really interesting. I just saw a tweet the other day that blew my mind, Joe. So this person was tweeting about how there are only trans mask stories, and there are no trans femme stories in YA. Um, And that has not been my experience of YA. I do kind of find it's actually the flip. Like, that's one of the reasons I was so interested in this story is because I can only think of maybe a couple of trans mass stories. I feel like on the show we have primarily talked about stories about and by trans women. So I was really like my mind was sort of scrambled by the tweet because there were all these people agreeing with it. And I was like, what Hmm. is happening? But I'm wondering if it's because this title right now is super buzzy. Quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like maybe there's been an increase in some trans mass stories and that person, I don't know, maybe they're new to the scene, but Mm. part of me is also like, uh, do a little bit of Google searching because I'm super happy because I feel like we're actually just seeing an explosion of trans stories. And I'm very excited because as we talked about with Meredith Russo and as we talked about with Kai Ching Tom. More is better. More is better, but also the diversity of types. Like, we've got fantasy, we've got romance. Like, they're not rooted in trauma porn, which Mm -hmm. is just super, super refreshing. Super refreshing. Totally agree. Um, Speaking of refreshing, Joe, Mm -hmm. I took some advice from you this week in my reading. Oh, Oh dear, I'm worried. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Months and months and months and months ago, in fact, probably like a year ago, we were talking about the show and you were rereading all of Giant Days at the time because you were kind of having a bad day, week, month. You were going through a bit of a thing and you were reading them as cozy literature. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was in the library the other day and I was like, oh, I just want to read something that I know is going to be really good. 
Mm-hmm. And I realized I am quite a few issues behind in Giant Days. So I picked up volume 10 and 11 at the library and read them. And okay. I just want to thank you because Giant Days is always a really good place to go home to. <sighs> it's just so satisfying. The characters are so convincingly drawn, both literally as well as character based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I recognize that this sounds a little bit weird because I'm not as British as you are in terms of like roots, but <laughs> I'm pretty British. It feels like a warm cup of tea, right? It does. So those of you who haven't heard us talk about it before, Giant Days is a comic series by John Allison and Max Saren does the illustrations, at least in the volumes that I've been reading. And it takes place at a English university in the north of England and it follows these three women and their friend group through their university careers. And it's Mm -hmm. absolutely lovely. It's actually just ended. The series ended, um, well, this year, a few months Mm -hmm. back anyway. So I was realizing that, yeah, I only gotten as far as volume nine. So the library had 10 and 11 and 12, 13 and 14 are all out. So I got to get on it. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I recommend it. If you're just looking for something that feels cozy and is interesting and gripping and fun and funny, but isn't going to hurt you, (laughs) I recommend picking up Giant Days. Yes. Hard cosine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get to this main event, Brenna. Oh, wait. There's one more thing I wanted to do. Oh, okay. (laughs) Are you leaving that in or cutting it out? Either or. I just wanted to say, and this is just a quick one because I'm not finished it yet, but a book of interest to our listeners, particularly if you were into our conversation about Trickster or previously our conversation about The Lesser Blessed, I just started reading A History of My Brief Body by Billy Ray Belcourt. This is the buzzy Canadian nonfiction. Belcourt is a poet, but this is his debut memoir, and it's very much about his sort of teenage, adolescence, and early adulthood. So I think our listeners will really, really enjoy it. It's quite raw. Um, if you don't like reading about sexuality, it might be not might not be your title, but okay. it's a pretty fantastic queer Indigenous memoir that I think everybody should pick up. Wow. Billy Ray Belcourt's the youngest ever winner of the Griffin Prize, and I think that this book is something quite remarkable. Yeah, I think our listeners would really like it, Joe. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now I'm done. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So let's do some YA in focus. Yeah. And I'm curious. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I want you to go first because you're going to talk about Kevin Williamson and I want to make sure we have time to talk about Dawson's Creek. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. (laughs) So I'm curious, Brenna, how much about Kevin Williamson do you know? He made Dawson's Creek. Okay, so we we will work with that. (laughs) (laughs) So... Kevin Williamson was born in North Carolina in 1965, but he didn't make a huge cultural impact until he broke out with Scream in 1996. And it's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that he managed to produce about six different super well-known, very successful film screenplays in the course of about two and a half years. Oh my god. 
he had a number of different things that he was working on when he was a student at UCLA, but he wasn't really finding any kind of traction until he wrote Scream and it captured Wes Craven's attention. And it became this massive surprise success in the winter of 1996. So it had a $14 million budget. It went on to gross $173 million worldwide more or less restarted the horror genre. There had been a lot of other films that had come out in the first half of the decade, but it basically changed the entire direction of horror for roughly half a decade to like seven years. And part of the reason that it did this is because it reintroduced the idea that teen horror could be successful again. So horror was primarily oriented towards adults and Yeah, we don't have to go into it if people really want to hear me talk about Scream or I Know What You Did Last (laughs) Summer and that kind of stuff. You got a whole podcast for that stuff, Joe. Yeah, but it's worth noting that one of the things that people associate with Scream, it's not just that it's like this collaborative team up with Williamson and Craven, or the fact that it was using, at the time, WB, so like Warner Brothers, the TV station, was producing teen content, and it started to become a bit of a pipeline. Like, if you were on a show on the WB, you would go on to star in these teen horror films, Mm -hmm. and... They were making bank. But the big thing was Scream. And then this becomes part of the Dawson's Creek conversation is that its dialogue is really where it's at. Like Kevin Williamson is amazing at crafting teen speak lingo that is like an earworm. It's super catchy. It's very contemporary. It's pop culture laden and highly, highly quotable. And people try to imitate it, but they don't do it as well. I was going to say, you say pop culture laden, and that's true, but also super literate. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The references are often really like quite, they're not just pop culture, I guess is what I'm saying. They're like... Yeah. It's almost like he's finding gems. Mm-hmm and then bringing them into contemporary dialogue in a way that is almost unnatural for the way that people actually speak. Like, no one is this erudite. No one can capture this level of detail or almost like a rote memorization of facts and titles and plot in the way that Williamson can. So his characters seem hyper-naturally intelligent and savvy as a result. And it's so compelling. Oh, it's so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so this gets put into great effect from basically 1996 through to about 1999 so he has scream in 96 i know what you did last summer in 97 scream 2 in 1997 as well and then halloween h2o and the faculty in 1998 Then we've also got Dawson's Creek on the CW network. He pitched it apparently as some kind of wonderful meets Pump Up the Volume meets James at 15 meets My So-Called Life meets Little House on the Prairie. (laughs) oh my god okay (laughs) which if you think about it what you just said which is like drawing on this vast expanse of different kinds of literature film and television history like yeah i mean woof there's a lot there and this show dawson's creek he actually leaves it at the end of season two but he sets in motion the structure and the characters that are so popular that this show lasts for six seasons and 128 episodes man It's kind of crazy. It is. Sorry, I keep saying it. 
it's kind of astounding. Mm -hmm. And what's even more astounding is the fact that as of 1999, he goes into a period where he cannot get a success off the ground. So he has three years where he is the most popular person in Hollywood and then spends almost a decade trying to capture even a semblance of that fire. Why? That's what's crazy. (laughs) Mm. That's what's shocking. It's not quite clear why things then fall apart for him. So Mm -hmm. he ends up leaving Scream 3. It was supposed to come out in 99. Things didn't work out quite that well, so it ends up coming out in 2000. But... The minute he steps away from the Scream franchise, things start to fall apart for him. And one of the reasons that he stepped away is because there's a huge history with him working with the Weinsteins at Dimension at the time. It's a big to-do. They were constantly asking for changes. So he was like, fine, you've got the script treatment. I'm going to walk away. And he ends up leaving to direct his own feature. So he's always a screenwriter, but he wanted to direct. So Mm. he had a not great relationship with Lois Duncan as a result of what happened on I Know What You Did Last Summer, which is based on her 1973 novel, Mm. but really in title only. Yeah. So he ends up trying to adapt another one of her books called Killing Mr. Duncan for a movie that was originally titled Killing Mrs. Tingle. (gasps) Katie Holmes is in that. Katie Holmes is in that, yes, and Barry Watson, both of them from WB. Mm-hmm. But because of what happens in Columbine, the oh. movie is a complete flop. So oh. it gets retitled, Teaching Mrs. Tingle. They decide that they have to par down on the violence because they don't want kids in high school killing people. And the movie is a huge failure. It ends up grossing only $8.9 million on a $13 million budget. It's like this movie should have been able to make bank on his name as well as the subject matter and the stars and the timing is all wrong because of Columbine. Wow, that's crazy. So this kind of keeps happening. He ends up reteaming with Wes Craven in 2003 to relaunch the werewolf genre in horror. He's got Christina Ricci, Jesse Eisenberg as cast members, and the movie ends up more or less going into development hell. They reshoot almost the entire movie twice over. The budget is anywhere between 38 to $75 million. People don't know what it is because of reshoots that took two years. So the movie doesn't end up coming out until 2005, and it only grosses $30 million. Man. So this kind of thing just keeps happening to him, and he doesn't find success again until 2009, when he ends up optioning another adaptation, this time of L.J. Smith's book series, The Vampire Diaries. He turns this into a television show that ran for eight seasons, 171 episodes, and one spin-off on The CW. Hmm. Yeah, and this is a future episode in the making of the initial run is four books, but the TV show, as you heard me say, is quite a bit lengthier, so it's a matter of how can we do a couple of episodes and get the flavor while still being able to talk about the book. So hopefully sometime in the new year, I'm going to make you do that. And I think it's a lot of fun because it's the same kind of compelling narrative with sexy characters and they speak very well, but this one is obviously more supernaturally inclined. Hmm, Okay. So thinking about the future, he was originally tied to Scream 4, and the same kind of thing happened that happened on Scream 3. So he was involved initially, and then he backed off. And he is executive producing the fifth Scream movie, which is currently in production and scheduled to come out in January of 2020. 
22. Time will tell whether he can kind of bring it back full circle, but it seems like his career trajectory is definitely tied to the Scream franchise. But if you think about his lasting impact on YA, I would definitely say it's somewhere between Dawson's Creek and Scream. (laughs) It's interesting, too, because Dawson's Creek, it kicked off quite a moment of YA, right? Like I think about Dawson's Creek, and then I think about the way that style was replicated in a show like Felicity for a more NA audience, for example, that same Mm -hmm. kind of like rapid speaking, richly intertextual dialogue with really, really smart young people at the core of the storytelling. Yep. And it's interesting that that formula had such a moment at the late 90s, early 2000s, and then... Yeah, it's tapered off again. Kind of tapered off. And it's a shame because it is by far my favorite (laughs) YA genre. West Wing for teens is what I like best. (laughs) Yeah, I think part of the problem is that, as I mentioned, people try to emulate him, but they can't quite get it. So it ends up feeling like it's trying too hard to please. Yeah. I will say that Finale of Dawson's Creek is one of my favorite all-time creative choices in television, just in terms of like the way he chose to end it in a way that I think he knew was going to enrage at least 50% of his audience. <laughs> well, bear in mind, he wasn't attached to the show at that point oh, anymore. Never but mind. I'm sure that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that killing off one of your principal four is ever a, a good way to go. No, it's not that so much as the, um, when you have a series that has a will they, won't they narrative, usually the final right. answer is, someone else right like so in Dawson's Creek we have the Pacey Joey Dawson triangle Mm -hmm. and like most shows would have the end point be some other third person who we hadn't met before as the romantic interest for the main right right but instead Joey and Pacey end up together which is what should have happened all along yeah okay they're adorable together and Dawson's the worst oh yeah I mean if you want to talk about the epitome of terrible white dudes mediocre white boy there we go Dawson. <laughs> he's one of the ogs if we're thinking about mid 90s you know the other thing i think kevin williamson gets really well that is clearly something many creators have struggled with as we've seen on this show is how much parents is enough parents mm, okay because i think on dawson's creek in particular Unlike other shows of the genre, we have interesting, rounded parents who fuel drama, but who are never center stage. Right. And I think that that dynamic, we've talked about this on the show lots of times, it seems to be really hard for people to hit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a constant struggle. I'll say I'm interested to see what you think of The Vampire Diaries when we get to it, because Mm. it does sometimes struggle with that, but less so in the first season. So the likelihood is is you would be seeing it kind of at its apex. Cool. Yeah. So that is Kevin Williamson. Oh, and I should also note that he is an out gay man. Always nice to see somebody who isn't afraid of disclosing their orientation when they become famous, because that does tend to happen in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. All right. Tell me about Judy Bloom. I'm going to tell you about Judy Bloom. So I was thinking when I took Max's advice and started looking into Judy Bloom that it's kind of bizarre we haven't talked about her on the show yet. Oh, I know. I did have one episode scheduled and it got bumped back. So I'm hoping, again, we'll do it early in the next year she's just such a significant figure but you know her work has not been heavily adapted and Mm -hmm. i'm wondering i mean i think that's pretty clearly her decision um and something she feels really strongly about but i don't know i kind of want to talk about the fact that her work has been sort of 
fixed to literature has made it so that there's a kind of purity about Judy Bloom, right? She ha- she has not been exploited as an industry in the same way so many YA creators do get exploited. So I think she's an interesting figure from that perspective. Anyway, a little bit of a sort of context. She's born in 1938. So she's in her 80s now. Oh, I was gonna say she's still alive. That surprises me. Hm. Yeah, she is. She's still alive. She's in her 80s. She's had two cancer scares, but she is still with us. Okay. And uh, she was the daughter of, you know, fairly typical upper middle class family. Her father was a dentist. Uh, her family's Jewish, grew up in sort of one of those small New Jersey communities that's commuting distance to New York. And that is where a lot of her books are set. Like a lot of her characters kind of live that similar existence. Okay. It's interesting. She had this, she had two sort of traumatic incidences in her youth. One she's talked about a lot and the other that she didn't start talking about until her most recent adult novel came out. So the first is that she she got mono when she was a teenager and got pulled out of school. It was like end of high school, beginning of university, one or the other. But that seems to have done a lot for her creativity, (laughs) being sort of secluded for a long period of time. But the other thing is that when she was a fairly young teenager in this tiny community of Elizabeth, New Jersey, there were three plane crashes in two years and 118 people died across those crashes. Holy cow. Yes. And her father, because he was a dentist and he lived in the town, he actually helped with the identification of the bodies. Mm, grizzly. We're super grizzly, right? And I, I think that this moment, you know, she didn't talk about it until in 2015, her most recent novel, which is fantastic, by the way, you would really like it. It's a okay. book for adults. It's called In the Unlikely Event. And it basically talks about this. It's basically about these mysterious plane crashes and then what happens to people who have that kind of traumatic incidents in their teen years, kind of. Mm-hmm. It's really good. And I read it on an airplane, though, which was a bad idea. Oh, but no. no <laughs> I no. didn't know it was about plane crashes. <laughs> I'm not the sharpest knife. Anyway. <laughs> Brenna going on board. Just some light reading. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the stewardess, I was opening it, or sorry, the flight attendant, and I was opening the book and she's like, is that what you're reading? And I was like, uh-huh. And she's like, okay (laughs) foolish girl (laughs) and then we're taking off and i'm reading this grizzly plane crash scene anyway but can we talk about how the flight attendant 100 percent knew what the content of that judy bloom book was (laughs) yes she was totally i know right i wish wish we'd exchanged emails right anyway the reason why i bring that up the reason why i think it's important is because judy bloom is sort of the significant figure for taking teenage and young adulthood seriously Mm -hmm. way before most people were taking it seriously right so she starts publishing books in 1969 primarily middle grade at the beginning middle grade and early adolescence over the 1970s she publishes 13 books so she becomes incredibly prolific through that period but she's consistently always also publishing books for adults Oh, okay. So her book Wifey came out in 78, Smart Women in 83, Summer Sisters in 98, and then In the Unlikely Event in 2015. So like every decade, she's also been writing for adults. Hmm. In fact, fun fact, the one and only time the librarian called my parents (laughs) when I was growing up was when I had read all the Judy Bloom in the library in the upstairs area, which was for kids. You were trying to read the adult Judy Bloom? I checked out Wifey. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> the thing is that, like, my mom read all the Canlet when I was growing up, and uh, I had already read a lot about broken marriages. It's really scary emotional stories by that point. But I bring up Wifey in particular because 
I got to read you a quote from Judy Bloom about the publication of her first adult novel in 1978. Okay. She said, it's my first novel for adult readers. Sandy Pressman was raised to lead a 50s life. You know, you grow up, you get a college degree, just in case, God forbid, you ever have to work. You marry well, you have children, and that's the problem. And what? For Sandy, it's the summer she begins to question her choices and give in to her fantasies. It's a book about an extramarital affair with an old high school boyfriend. Yes. When Wifey was published, some people thought I would never write another children's book. Some people thought I had finally written a real book at last. Some were angry that I hadn't used a pseudonym. And others that I even had such thoughts. And I began to hear from old boyfriends. (laughs) (laughs) And even that frankness, right? Like that relatability and that control of voice you can immediately understand why people gravitate towards her. Yes, totally. So, you know, you think about her most famous books, like Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which, by the way, has been greenlit for an adaptation that's coming out this year, apparently. Oh, really? Okay, because I was shocked that that had not been adapted. Yeah, I really get the sense that she has resisted selling the rights to her books, because as near as I can figure, the first one of her books that was actually adapted was Tiger Eyes. Yes, that was the one I was going to get us to do. Oh, good. I'm excited. But did you see who the director of that was? I can't recall off the top of my head. Her son. (gasps) What? Yes. So the first, and to my knowledge, the only successful selling of rights, and maybe even the first time she's ever actually done it, was her son in 2012. She, you know, sold the rights so that her son could make the adaptation. So I find that really interesting. I think she's been really nervous about it. And for good reason, right? We've seen so many bad adaptations over the years. Sure have. I mean, we've seen a bunch of good ones as well, just to clarify. But it's one of those things where you don't want to risk a bad adaptation after putting so much time and energy into delivering the utmost quality, right? Right. And we're talking about a writer who is very much known for her personal integrity. Yes. And who has spent a career fighting like, well, I mean, so many of her books have been challenged and censored over the Mm -hmm. years. It's so funny now. Have you ever read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret? I haven't, no. Okay, so it seems like the purest of pure stories now. Like, it's about a young woman who, her parents have an interfaith marriage, Christian and Jewish. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they decide to not raise their kids with any religion at all, because they figure they'll figure it out for themselves as they get older. And it's about questions that you have about God when you don't have any context for it. And that was something I really related to as a kid, someone who was raised totally without church. I remember like testing out praying as a young Uh teenager. (laughs) What's this all about? Is it going to do anything for me? Like, Uh what do I get if I do this? How do I know if I do it right? Yeah. And so this idea of exploring your personal relationship with God without any context for it, I really, I really related to. But like you read it now and it's so gentle. Like the fact that it's still getting challenged widely. I think there's like, there might be a scene where she masturbates, but it's like. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's the combination of religion and masturbation. Yeah. Yeah. Heaven forbid. (laughs) Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. It's just interesting because that book is still, like that book came out in 1970 and it Mm -hmm. was still in the top 100 most challenged books in the 2000s. So like. Yeah, I don't get it. Like, have people not figured out that when you challenge a book, it doesn't go away? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, Brenna, do you not understand? All you have to do is get a book onto that list, and then all the copies just magically vanish from every library, from every bookstore. (laughs) It's like, poof, it's just gone. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know, man. It's uh, Anyway, it turns out that adaptation is going to be done by the folks who made The Edge of Seventeen. Oh, yes, I did know that. Yeah. And that's good because The Edge of Seventeen is also quite frank and very smart and savvy. And it's a female director, which I think is pretty integral mm-hmm. for for um, a Judy Bloom text. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say except that she's delightful. If it's been a long time since you've revisited Judy Bloom or if you've never read Judy Bloom, I totally recommend you pick up anything. Um, my favorites <laughs> as a kid, my favorites as a kid were definitely Deanie and Tiger Eyes as a teenager. But her adult fiction is also fantastic. So yeah, go check out Judy Bloom if you haven't, man. She's been around since 1969 because she's great. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is exciting. If nothing else, we're giving listeners a glimpse into the future because we will 100% have to cover both of these people. So we yes. will have to do the Vampire Diaries and have to do either Tiger Eyes or maybe if we're lucky and COVID doesn't snatch another property away from us <laughs> this year, maybe we'll be getting a Are You There? God, it's me, Margaret. Oh my gosh. If that actually comes out, then we should do like a double header. Nice. Yeah. I like it. Cool. <laughs> So if you want to share your thoughts about Judy Bloom or Kevin Williamson or, you know, grab bags in general and the enjoyment thereof, sure. you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B. Stole My Remote. And that's the letter B. And I gave it once, but I'll give it again. The email for anything longer is hkhspod at gmail.com. You guys, it genuinely makes our day when you write in. So mm-hmm. don't hesitate. If you've got something to say, say it. Yeah. And as you see, we do occasionally actually follow through when people <laughs> give us many suggestions. So thanks again, Max. This was lots of fun. and our next episode is the body by stephen king and stand by me right it is indeed i'm very Mm -hmm. excited it's the appropriate level of spooky for you by which i mean there's virtually none (laughs) that's my favorite amount of spooky yeah and it's a short story so i'm not going to lose any hair about the fact that i don't have time to read yay Yay! it's the perfect episode everybody (laughs) wins until next time i'll see you on those very short pages yes and i will see you on the i actually think it's a relatively long movie but it's a good movie so i will see you on the screen (laughs) bye-bye bye